1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: I'm April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Tyler Krishner has been fishing for trout and steelhead since the 1960s. A retired high school teacher and well-known fishing personality, he's been at the heart of steelhead advocacy for as long as I've known him. Tyler put in 18 years of guiding on BC's Haida Gwaii before hanging up his hat and becoming vice president of the Steel hat Society of BC. Tyler is a skilled float fisherman, though it's spay casting that consumes his time these days. A spayorama competitor, he won the inaugural senior championship in 2012 and continues to practice and compete with the belief that it makes him a better angler. On a recent road trip up north, I stopped in to see him at Sheridan Lake to see if I could learn a little more of his backstory. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss the Thompson River, competitive casting, and more.
1: Born and raised in Vancouver, lived till halfway through grade five in Burnaby. And then Christmas time, moved to Tawasin.
3: Did you do any fishing growing up?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. My uh, my mom's dad, uh, George Massey, as in the tunnel, he was a fisherman. And he used to come by and swipe me and take me down to Deer Lake and he'd row me around and go fishing. Sometimes he'd even come by and take me and we'd, we'd head up to uh, Little Lakes behind Harrison and go fishing. And he'd phone my mom from like 15 miles away and say, I got him.
3: So what about your parents?
1: um they were the very best in that they wanted us to be able to do everything that we wanted to do and i had the bug my mom my mom talks about that when we used to go for picnics down at at point roberts uh and i'd be like two years old and as soon as i saw the 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 water i peed myself and they had to change oh, my diaper right and, and it still kind of happens when I go to a tackle <laughs> store. I kind of go. To, I managed to get to the bathroom, but that bug's always been there. And my dad, my dad loved salmon fishing. Like he bought a boat when I was about eleven. Okay. And we fished off of Point Roberts, and then got brave and started going over to Active Pass. And he loved the salmon fishing. Trout fishing, he did because I wanted to. You know, we came here to Sheridan Lake when I was thirteen. I was I was telling you earlier it's my fifty second year of fishing this lake. And, uh, you know, my dad would come and he would go out and fish and he'd go out there. But it was all about letting me and my buddy fish. When I, when I started fly casting here, you know, he never, he didn't, he wasn't interested in that. He liked to row. We, we basically would go out and, you know, with fly lines or sometimes lead cord, depending on time of year, and get your fly out there and pull the oars out and slowly row around. And he really liked that. Why did you start fly fishing? Because you could catch more.
3: Okay, so how did you figure that out?
1: (laughs) Well, this is a really big lake with a whole lot of of really diverse areas. And, you know, you'd be going along in the middle of the lake and you'll come up to a a hump that's 12 feet from the surface and everything else around it is 60, 70, 80 feet. And in in growing up rowing so much and drifting around, we discovered all these places. But, you know, the the key places, some of the points and and the shoals that we used to just live on, we would, you know, put in upwind, let our lines out and drift row. You know, we basically drifted with the wind and just kept the boat straight with the oars. And we'd row across the tip of the island and we'd catch fish just about every time. But then what started to happen was these, these guys from Kamloops of all places started showing up and they'd all anchor right on the point. There'd be like 10 boats on the point and we'd look at it and, well, we can't drift through there. And we were still young and pretty aggressive. And so we made a few, <laughs> we made a few drifts through <laughs> to make our point but after a while, you know, I was watching, and they're catching a lot of fish. Yeah. So I said, "Okay, you guys, you want to play that game? You're going to be fishing. You're going to be fishing in my spot. I'm going to. I'm going to learn how to do it. I'm going to catch more than you guys."
3: <laughs> do you know who these guys were?
1: Um, they were Kamloops Fly Club. I'm not. I'm not sure of who they were, but.
3: So what were you wind drifting by with them? You know, on your line.
1: Oh, depended on the time of year. Um, early in the year, it was basically big old leeches, or you know, they called called them horse hairs, okay. which goodness knows what they were. Some people thought they were helgramites. They could be anything—a dragonfly, a leech, you know, one of those, you know, like a dog sprout. It's not like a spratly fly, but you know, they imitate it a little bit anything. of everything. Yeah, except a chronomid. Except a chronomid. Is that
3: what they were fishing?
1: That's what those—they are fishing. Some chronomids back then. Now we're we're talking thirty years ago now.
3: Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you ever decided to learn more about chronomids?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. There was a guy who's still here at the lake. We call him um, Brookie Joe. Even though there's no more brookies in this lake, that's Did he, there
3: used to be brookies. They here? They used
1: to plant them here. Yeah. yeah. There's still the odd one that they shoal spawn. There's a couple of springs maybe, and they spawn on the shoals. And there's a few around. They quit putting them in because they found they were getting out. There's high water years down by, by Texan Kitties or Loon Bay now. that They get through under the road and on off into Bridge Creek. And they were worried that they'd end up putting themselves places where they, they weren't welcome. So they quit planting them. But that's what with Joe, that's all he wanted to do. And he'd fish like the brookies lived in tight to shore and under the bushes and whatnot. And I was hanging around him and another guy just at camp. And he said, well, come on, we'll fish. And, and so we went out and they were fishing. Chronometers back in the trees and they work pretty good and I thought okay enough of this brookie stuff I'm going to go out where the where the real trout are because I was you know rowing and drifting I I basically I had no dry lines I had sink tips but I thought okay the water's 25 feet deep and I'll put a 10 foot sink tip and I'll put 15 feet a liter on there and Bob's your and it worked I started catching sort of fish right away and I went huh this is cool and um (laughs) those Kamloops guys, they did do me some right in the end. I came across and I, I honestly don't know where, but I got a document that was written by a number of the Kamloops fly club members and it had fly patterns and what they and how to tie them. It was different techniques on fishing. And it was just printed pieces of paper. It wasn't wasn't a book or a magazine. And Oh, I, I poured over those things and I figured them out. And, you know, you make your own adjustments as you go along. But that yeah. was sort of the key. And, yeah.
3: See, I never picked you to be a Stillwater guy. To me, you were always a steelhead guy.
1: Well, Because yeah.
3: you were legendary on the Thompson. I remember hearing crazy stories. I and mean, obviously you caught a lot of fish, but I didn't know you well. I just knew you were the guy not to mess with because you had a reputation for being a tough guy. So, let me just get back to your timeline then. Did you graduate high school?
1: Of course. Uh 1972. Delta Secondary.
3: What were you like in school?
1: I was your jock. Um
3: Cuz how big are you?
1: 62.
3: Yeah, so big guy.
1: Yeah, I was I was the basketball guy. I was the foot I was the quarterback in the football. I was I was that guy. <laughs> I was looking at my my annual not too long ago, and I was I was going to play pro football or pro baseball. That was what I said, and and hunting, and I was I had a thing on people who were against hunting because we hunted. We grew up hunting ducks and. I didn't stuff, know you, the, you weren't hunting ducks and f- pheasants. Well, I grew up in Tuason, like even though even though it's it's kind of upper upper middle. It's surrounded by farmland.
3: Yeah, it's like bird capital of B- well, of Lower Mainland yeah. anyway.
1: So yeah, I used to come home after school and uh, walk in the back door, grab my gun off the wall, in the garage door, out the back door with the dog, down the hill, and we used to walk across the... Thirteenth fairway of Beach Grove Golf Course. Yeah, and can <laughs> you imagine a fourteen-year-old kid with a gun over his shoulder and a dog, and and the the golfers would all wave and say, "How you doing?" What? <laughs> well, it was that was like nineteen seventy. Oh, that's so cool. So today, yeah, you'd be flat in your back, and then your parents would be getting you out of the cop shop.
3: How did you handle a non-hunter?
1: Like, oh, what, what would you say to them? Not much, just nothing. I I have. Um, I've learned a little bit over the years, not to be quite so arrogant, um, but with people that I didn't think much of or think belonged or, or heaven, as my dad used to get so mad at me, kids who weren't as good an athlete, I didn't even want them out there in the game. I was terrible.
3: Well, at least you admit it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I learned the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? A couple punch-ups? Oh, lots of punch-ups.
3: Yeah. So how did Steelhead come into your life?
1: Field and Stream magazine. Really? An article on on the Kispy Ox. And it was like front page, the, the cover front cover was this big old steelhead. The story was, you know, f- mostly fly stuff on the Kispy Ox. And, uh, you know, the Carl Mauser pictures and there was Chuck Ewart's big, you know, 36 pounder that that they caught on gear. It turns out he was my best buddy's dad's fishing partner. And, oh. his, and his my best buddy's dad actually helped him land that fish. So anyway, I just was crazy but I didn't know anything about it and my dad didn't know anything about it. Nobody I knew knew anything about it, but I wanted to know. Yeah. And this is my dad. He he uh asked around with people he knew and one of the guys that worked for him, was my dad was a elementary school principal at the time, uh I think the music teacher, old Ken Sotvet, he said, Oh I know Steelhead and I'll take you Steelhead. Well we, he was taking me to little Campbell, oh and, wow, and we never found the water, <laughs> and so it was a it was quite the aborted trip. I didn't learn anything, and so i was I was pretty disappointed, although he did lend me for the next fifteen years as hardy major, and so again, I was even crazier because i I almost got to know something, and I had this really cool reel right and so my dad started asking around Ladner and um Came across a guy named Dick Blacksland, who was just super nice guy. He was a little bit on the slow side, but just a sweet man. And he said, "Yeah, I'll I'll take Tyler, Steelhead. and you know he got me set up, showed me how to rig up everything properly with the you know the float and." Oh
3: you know. yeah, because you weren't fly fishing.
1: Oh no, not not. I didn't fly fish for years. Anyway, uh, yeah, Dick took me up to the Vetter and. And I still remember, you know, sitting there and he he believed in using gem eggs, a single gem egg. And uh, I remember fishing this side. There was hundreds of guys on the Nevada. It was like, you know, that would have been 1967 or eight. There was hundreds of people. They think it's crowded now. Differences, everybody moved back then. But anyhow, I was fishing this little side channel. And it was kind of it was a big stump, and I let the bobber go around. The bobber went down, and I reefed back on it, and a poor little white fish, about 13 inches long, went sailing over my head into the bushes. Oh, But I saw Lee Strait catch a fish oh. that day, and that was, that was way cool. And that was enough that kept my buddy and I i uh, my best bud, and I go on for three years or so.
3: On the Chilliwack? Yeah. What about the Thompson?
1: The Thompson.
3: Sorry, it's like, it's hard to go down memory lane, but...
1: I can, you know, I, I can remember my parent. my grandparents lived in Vailmount, which is not far from Jasper, just inside BC. And we used to go up there uh, for Christmas every other year, and uh, you can only go by train, you couldn't drive. And so... 16 years old, and we're up there for Christmas, and of course you're 16, and you'd rather be doing other stuff than hanging out with your parents and your grandparents, but my buddy Barry and I had a trip planned to Vancouver Island. We're going to go fish our, he had a Volkswagen van, you know, he's 17, I was 16, and uh, Volkswagen van, and we we're going to go fish the East Coast and head on over to wherever. I had the Alec Merriman book, the you know, steelhead book, or a Vancouver Island book, and we fished the Kowalikums, we fished the oyster, we fished the Campbell, the Quinsum. And then we said, you know, I have an uncle who lives in Gold River. Let's go over there. So we did. We pulled up and my uncle's knocked on the door and he put us up in the basement and um, said, uh, okay, well, there's this guy, Tim Timmons, who was a real famous guide, whatever. And, you know, I'd, I knew him from Merriman Book. My uncle told me to go down just above the junction pool with the... Um, Oh, I'm having a senior moment now, the Heber, it's okay. where okay. the Heber comes in. And who's walking up the trails going in but Tim Timmons? And I'm like, I'm... <laughs> and he says, hey, son, uh, nice reel. <laughs> like my major. And he says, what you got? And I had a gooey bob on. He goes, I'll get him. He says, go down there. And he says, uh, where the foam shows after the thing, cast in there and you'll get one. Well, darned if I didn't. That was the, the very first one I got on my own. On the gold. Yeah, that was cool. Um, But I do remember the very first one Barry and I got. That was even better. It was on the Vetter. We walked in around Mumford's, and um, he got a fish. Like, he got this fish. And, And back in those days, you know, everybody moved. You walked, and we'd put on, and we were, you know, 15, 16. And we.
3: Um, so, you mean like while you're drift fishing, you're moving? Well, you, you
1: just fish, you start at the top of a pool and you fish your way through. Taking turns. Yeah. Well, I'd go first in this pool. He'd go first in the next pool. And, but then you go to the next pool and you keep going. You know, you don't, it's not like now where you go out there and guys are building campfires and setting up tents and, you know, uh, everybody moved. That was just like a conveyor. There are lots of guys, but you were always fishing a pool because everybody was moving. Right. So we got we got this fish, and we must have been two or three miles from the car. And so we walked out to the road, and the two of us walking along, you know, that swinging the fish a little bit, you know, just swaggering. Yeah. And so he'd walk, and then I'd say, "Okay, my turn," and I'd carry the fish for.
3: Because you few, wanted people to see yeah, you guys.
1: Yeah. For yeah. a few hundred <laughs> yards, and then we he'd say, "Okay, it's mine. Give it back." And
3: <laughs> Were there a lot of fish back
1: then? Yeah, I. I, I once you learned how to fish them, like for a few years, I would have swore there weren't any. We'd go fish and not catch anything. And on the way home, we'd stop on the Nickamackle and catch some cutthroat and carry on, <laughs> take some cutthroat home. But, you know, it's like steelhead. Once you learn how to catch them, then you catch a few, then you know where they live. And all of a sudden, you start catching lots. When
3: did you start fly fishing for them?
1: <laughs> yeah, I almost almost shudder to tell the story because it's, it's like too good.
3: You have to tell it now.
1: Um, we're over fishing the 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 uh, Campbell at Christmas. My buddy Barry and I are over fishing, fishing the Campbell, and I had a really good, really good morning. And at where the, the Quinsum runs in into the Campbell, got like four fish, and that was all a big deal on the float. And I had a I had a rod. I had a uh, a Hardy Jet eight nine glass rod, and in fact, I reel I still use. I caught fish on it today. My Marquis eight nine. Sink tips had just come out. The integrated sink tips had just come out. You could get like a high D sink tip. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take, take the fly rod out. And I walked down, I went, I drove down and went into the line fence pool, which goes down the fence right alongside Hey Brown's property. And I was a big Haig Brown fan. My mom had been buying me those his books from the time I was you know, 10 years old.
3: Was he around then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah I'm oh, walking cool. down there. I'm walking down there. Of course, you're looking at the house and looking at the house. well, the door opens, no. and out comes Hag Brown, pipe and all, right. Uh. And I'm just kind of going, "Whoa!" And you know, he was, you know, fifty yards away at least. And I go, "Okay." So I get down, and he's coming over to talk to you. He's coming over, and and I'm standing there at the river, and he walks up and he goes, "Let me see your, let me see your stuff, there, son." And he so he looks at my rod, and he says, "Oh, nice, nice." And he goes, "He thought my, he thought my fly was real good." And he says, "This line," he says, "That's one of these sink tips." And he goes, "Yeah," I go, "Yeah," and he goes. Wow, I've heard a lot about him. He says, well, get out there. And so I walk and he goes, no, wait out a little bit further. Okay.
3: Because it's his home pool.
1: Yeah. And then he says, okay, cast it out there. And he says, a little bit more. Okay, big mend. Oh. And I mend the light, goes down, and I and a steelhead grabs it. And and Rod Hig Brown turns into my dad. It was... Let him go. Let him go. Real, 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 real. Let him go. Real, real. And he beached my first steelhead on the fly.
3: You were guided by Roderick Haig Brown into your first steelhead. Yep. Oh my God! Do you know how many times I've gone to his house like a crazy stalker mm-hmm. and just stood in the bushes <laughs> and looked at it and tried to try to envision what it would look like? Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah, and so you know, we we released that fish. And
3: was that was that something that he really wanted to see you do? Did you want to keep it?
1: I I'd had, I don't like eating fish that much anyway, especially steelhead. I don't think they taste that good.
3: Was that a thing back then, letting steelhead go?
1: No, not really. It was just starting. It was starting.
0: Okay.
1: So anyway, away I go. I was all happy and go back and tell my buddy and oh yeah. So I was out bright and early the next morning with my float rod. In the same spot? <laughs> well, not there. Oh, the thank hunting. God. Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, I was like 18, I was in grade 12 and um. Uh, you know, that was first, and I would do it sort of after I'd had a good day. And you know, for a couple of years, I'd take my fly rod along. And we'd go to the Squamish, and we were getting pretty good at the Squamish. You know, once you learn, they're traveling, not living. And we'd uh, catch four or five or six or seven fish, and then you'd go back to the truck and get the fly rod and maybe get one. I finally, well, I've been trying to think of this exact date, whether it was eighty-two or eighty-four. I was at a Steelhead Society auction banquet. And uh, there was a spay rod blank on auction. It was a a sage ninety one forty three piece.
3: Oh God,
1: yes. <laughs> no, the three piece, not the four
3: piece. <laughs> what was that one like? Was it brown it, too?
1: Yeah, it was brown, but it was a stiffer. It was actually more like a more like a a, a ten weight. Okay. And it was it was a, a much different rod. In fact, I was just on online today having a discussion with. Uh, well, it was on a deck deck Hogan post. But also with Gary Anderson, the rod builder from Oregon. Yeah. And having a discussion about the differences between the 9140 four piece. Four versus and three. three. And it was that different. Oh, I hated the four.
3: Yeah.
1: It, it was a noodle. It wasn't until I learned to a cast that I appreciated the 9140. Yeah. But anyway, the Thompson.
3: Yeah. So tell me about your first experience going on the Thompson.
1: Well, it was this trip. I, I got sidetracked, which I do, um... I like a sidetrack talking about going over to the island.
3: Pretty damn good
1: storytelling. Mm, okay. But um, we were we were up at Vailmount, and my grandmother, my other grandmother from Ladner, phoned and said, you've got a problem. You've got a flood in the basement at your house. And uh, there was like six inches of water in the basement, and some pump had got plugged up or something. And my parents didn't want to go home, and I go... I'll go, because <laughs> then I could go fishing. But anyhow, in the train coming down, and we're going through Spencer's Bridge area, and it's just in the early morning, and there were, like, hundreds of guys. Like, what? On the Thompson? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's wow. That been 1970. And, like, through Shaw Springs, both sides of the river are just, like, fi- picket fence, guys fishing.
3: What were they fishing for? Let's do it.
1: It was, it was uh, late December, and the river used to stay open till the end of January.
3: And you could keep them? Oh, yeah. And they're huge.
1: Yeah. And so, anyway, I drove go right on by it. And and I, I never fished it till the late 70s. It was the first time I fished it. And, uh, again, it was once I'd built that 9143 piece. And so it might have been early 80s then. It had to be if I had that, that rod. No, I fished a couple times with gear. That's not that's true. Of that.
3: But when you started fly fishing— were you on a single hand rod or were you on the 9140?
1: I did it a couple times and it's just a, such a pain that I went, you know, like I've, I've said even now, if I wasn't allowed to use a double handed rod, I'd go back to fishing gear. I'm not yeah. going to go, I'm not going to go fish, you know, maybe a small stream. I could fish a single hander.
3: That might be the story for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't do it.
3: So let's talk about something really interesting. The Thompson in the state it's in right now, you and I had had, had and I'm sorry, I'm so stuffed up. You and I had an, had an interesting exchange. You were really interesting to hear from because my stance is there aren't enough fish. They're like 200 fish. We shouldn't be fishing it. And you have a very interesting stance on it. And I, I think it's quite diplomatic. And I was hoping that you'd share it.
1: Oh, I'm going to try and remember how I was diplomatic.
3: Well, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that with 200 fish we should actually be fishing it? Cuz
1: 200 fish. Um I was going in the in the second to last year, I had this thing was all rigged up, the trailer was all ready to go. I was going to go um, adamantly that I spent the last 20 years fighting and going to meetings, uh, writing letters, doing all that stuff to try and get them to, to treat the river the way it should be.
3: From a commercial stance? Well,
1: commercial stance, everything. Commercial stance, the water use.
3: Oh, yeah, because they're pumping lots of water for farming, right? Yeah.
1: And, uh, but yeah, primarily the, the one we can have the most impact on is is the interception fishery. But, you know, people are saying, well, we shouldn't be fishing. And I'm saying, well... Why not? Uh, first of all, our our impact was virtually zero. The biologists would say the same thing, like you know, especially fly fishing, but gear fishing as well is not much worse. There's the worst of the gear fishing is spoons, which I know you used to do.
3: Yeah, big time on
1: the Thompson because um, they take them so hard and they get after them, and the hooks are usually pretty big. Yeah, but yeah, I was I was going to go, and and Dana and Paul Beck, um, they kind of. I don't know, didn't talk me out of it, or they didn't quite shame me out of it, but they're saying, look, you're the vice president of the Steelhead Society. What kind of message are you putting out there uh, if you're going to go fish over 200? And so I took all the booze out and turned around and went to the Clearwater in in Idaho instead. Oh. Um, But more than that, like when you're fishing five, six, 700, you know, 800 fish, we should be fishing.
3: What about 3% mortality rate? If there are three hundred fish, three percent. I mean, is That's that a lot?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I don't believe three percent was the, was the the uh, mortality rate. It's way lower than that, especially fly fishing. Really? Yep.
3: It's interesting. It's you know you hear various reports. I no, talk,
1: just talk to Bison. talk to.
3: What did McMillan say when he came to the meeting?
1: Uh, he's such an interesting guy. He was super diplomatic. He is. Yeah, he was super. You couldn't. We we, we tried to pin him a little bit. Um, super interesting guy, and and nobody knows more. Learn stuff from him all the time, but yeah, he kind of feels the, the same way about the Thompson that we do.
3: But did it cause a lot of cont- contention? Was there a lot of drama with that around here?
1: No, I, f- I felt like no. it caused the guys. Some. The guys who had drama on it, the people who had the most to say were people who never fished it. Oh. People, people, people living on the Skeena. Would turn around and say to me, to Paul, back to Dana Stern, to all these other guys who've spent uh, most of our fishing life on that river, fighting for that river, knowing that river, to tell us what we can or can't do. And again, that that's a red flag. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, don't low hole me. And that's kind of the same thing.
3: What are the perks to fishing over 200 fish? I guess you're making sure no one's poaching.
1: Yeah, people are on the river. And there is poaching on that river. There is definitely poaching, and it's not just native. Yeah. That's not poaching. They're allowed to.
3: Are there any other perks that you can think of? Like for for people, forget the Thompson, but for people who live on fisheries where there are only a handful of fish, should they fish it or should they leave it alone, in your opinion? I mean, I feel like they should leave it alone, but I can see why it does make a difference to have a presence on the river.
1: Yeah, the presence is important, but but yeah, there, there comes a point where... Fishing makes no sense. You know, and it was always when when things got tough, who were the ones who who always were the first to be willing to step out of the water? Sports guys, always. Commercial guys, never. The natives, never. The guys who have the absolute least impact on the fish, absolute least impact, almost negligible impact, are the only ones willing to get out.
3: Do you think the Thompson will ever be what it used to be?
1: Well, not in my lifetime. I'll never get to fish it again. But the thing is, they are fecund and prolific. And if given a chance, you know, they, they yeah. If things like the society's working on right now, you know, encouraging pound nets. We, in fact, actually have some pretty positive stuff going on with the um, Chehalis band. And they're putting in two. They're putting in two, two pound nets. But... One is up the Chehalis a bit more, which isn't really what we are super excited about. The the second one is going to be closer to the Fraser. And we are looking to that. And and they have tremendous interest with other native bands up up the river that are looking at maybe traps are the way to go and they're super selective. And so that's happening in the lower river too. So if we ever get a handle on that, you know, again, you brought up 3% on 200 fish. You know, for a million years, DFO said 20% bycatch was okay of the, of the population. But when you're down to 200 fish, what's 20%? That's almost half the run, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And so, again, it, it, if we can get a handle on the interception, they, they will come back. Like, the habitat is there. The river has always been underused. Like, even uh, biologists believe 300 years ago. That, that the habitat was not fully used by steelhead. There just weren't enough of them and got there. And the spawning habitat never really was used. Um, th- there were numbers thrown around a, a few years ago that the river should have 40,000 steelhead. Now that, and, and the biologists laugh, they, they, they believe that maybe maximum was about 10,000. That 40,000 is a number that the river could support with in terms of its habitat and, and everything else. But it never it never ever did.
3: What was all the data with the trout? Trout that never
1: leave? Well, that's interesting. Um, there is residualization, it's part of their life strategy. This is one of the things that talking to John about in terms of the life strategies that steelhead have. You know, he talked about comparing the Pacific salmon. You know, I, I, might, I may be misquoting here, but Chinook have like two or three life strategies. Sockeye have two you know some some of them you know spawn above the lake and then and they and the, the fry right rear in the lake. Some there are a few where they spawn below a lake and then migrate up into it and those are two different life life strategies. And so when times are good, salmon salmon populations skyrocket when they're bad they, they, they collapse down. They're like a stock market and you look at the going up and going down whereas steelhead, Figures has 32 different life, life strategies. Wow. And um, they just, there's just so many different ways that they survive. For example, he talked about on a spawning event in the Thompson, one of the Thompson fee, um, spawning feeders, in a typical event, there will be the female object of attention, and there'll be the dominant male that's kind of beat up on some of the other ones and is, is in charge, and there'll be some subdominant males hanging around, hoping for, open. There'll be some jacks um, or resident rainbows, and they're hanging around. Then there's all these little weenie guys. They're called spawning par. They're maybe three, four inches long, and they they spend their whole life in the river under the rocks and along the shoreline, and they're sexually mature. John uh, John calls them Danny DeVitos. Yeah, he did. He did. I call them sneakers.
3: But they're actually... They're more efficient at fertilizing the eggs well, than the adults steal it.
1: And so the old, you know, the, the female does her shutter, which is the signal that she's going to drop her eggs. And the big old male goes in and he squirts and gets, he gets the most. And then the other males would go in and they'll get some. And this, then the uh, the resident rainbows will go in there and squirt away and have a, usually have a meal too. They'll They'll eat a few. A few eggs, but they'll they'll squirt away, and some of theirs, and then the the sneakers go in, and they'll get a, just a one or two eggs, but they do it well. Yeah, and all of those can produce a steelhead. Even the sneaker can produce a full on steelhead.
3: Did they figure out what percent of fish don't go back? I know he was saying it's that. been
1: going up. It depends on different rivers. They did a study down in one of the one of the Washington rivers, and uh, they they literally they they were interested in what effect hatchery fish had on on wild fish. And so they had a weir set up and they were intercepting literally every single steelhead that came up the river hatchery or or wild. And they were doing genetic testing on them that were going back like four generations on the the genes. And they had a real problem is they couldn't figure out where 40% of the genetic material was coming from. Mm. They had no idea until they started testing resident rainbows.
3: So they just have enough fat that they don't need to leave and enough food
1: source. Well, uh, yeah, that's... That's uh, whether they stay or go. That's an interesting question. I know I've, I posed that one for quite a while, trying to figure out why. And uh, finally, I got some some answers that made sense. Uh, it's got to do with lipid weight. Yeah. Basically, how quickly they grow. If they grow quickly, if they if they put on the fat weight within uh, you know a, a set period of time, then they stay.
3: Do the females ever, ever stay? I mean, it's just males that, that stay, right?
1: Generally, yeah, because the females, the females need, more, need more food. In fact, among adults, there are more, usually more, more females than males all the time.
3: But I'd heard the theories that that's one of the reasons that the Thompson was producing such few fish was that a lot of the fish just weren't leaving. Well, they were staying.
1: Well, you, you look at the enriching... Of the river from Kamloops, from sewage outflow, like where they treat it and put it out. The, the river right. is way rich. And so there's all kinds of bug life and there's all kinds. It's like, you know, it used to be Slippery River no matter what, but it's a treacherous river to wade because yeah. of all the all this stuff in the rocks. Is that what
3: it's from? Yeah.
1: Well, it always was. It's a rich, you know, the inland rivers are, are generally pretty rich, but the enriching of it from Kamloops.
3: And so because
1: of that. There's more stuff to eat, so they stay. If your fridge is full, are you gonna are you going to leave? You know, if if every time you go to the fridge, there's not quite enough to eat, then you're going to go looking for it. And that's basically if they grow more slowly, then then they start to drift down river and head on out where there's more food.
3: What percent of the problem could be that?
1: I don't know the number, but I would say it would be significant. There are tons. You want to go, people, people go trout fishing on the Thompson all the time, and they're catching steelhead. Well, all trout are steelhead.
3: So you make the river so that it's got, so it's more prolific, and the fish just don't have to leave, and you essentially cut yourself off of a steelhead source. That sounds dangerous. Well,
1: the thing is, if conditions change, two generations, five generations, 10 generations down the road, two resident residualized steelhead or trout on the Thompson spawn, and they still have every chance of their progeny going smolting and going to the ocean. They're genius. It's, and it's, that's part of their survival strategy, one, one, of, one of 32.
3: That is crazy. What's another example of a survival strategy?
1: Well, summer steelhead, winter steelhead. Again, there would be the the they they tend not to go through lakes very well. Steelhead, like natural lakes. tests.
3: Right. So that's really interesting because you had said to me earlier that uh, you're lake fishing and because really steelheading is kind of done. Do you believe that?
1: It's pretty hard, you know. Um, it's one of the one of the the myriad of problems of being old. Er. Is you remember what it was like? Yeah. And what I consider good steelheading and what the average thirty-year-old today thinks is good steelheading are two way different things.
3: What do you consider good steelheading?
1: You know, I'm uh, as a fly guy. I'm always happy with one. If I catch one, it's been a great day. But it's more the 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 um, quality of the experience. It's like um, I didn't fish well. <laughs> I'm the vice president of the Steelhead Society, have been for a number of years. And this year, when my little steelhead chart came around that I'm supposed to fill out you know, where I fished, how many I caught, and where I didn't catch, and whatnot, I actually had nil. I did not fish a stream in BC for steelhead this last year. I fished 30 days for steelhead in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. You know, and and I, I also sit on the, on, on Pat, the Pacific Angling Advisory Team, and we talk, talk about this and, and, you know, they're saying, well, we have these opportunities we have, you know, we're putting fish here or, you know, the local rivers. I said, no, I, there aren't any opportunities for me. I don't want to go to the Squamish and have six jet boats go roaring by me and sit on all the good spots because there you just sit and wait for the fish. That's just that's just not an experience. I don't I don't want to go to the Vetter. The Vetter I just get frustrated. Vetter's a beautiful river if there weren't hundreds and hundreds of gear guys plunked in every spot and not moving. Right. Um, even the fly guys are all over the place. So that's just not an experience.
3: Yeah.
1: I'd rather drive to, you know, Deskina. Well, it's got to the point where it's so busy you you know, you spend time there and even with a boat, even with a good boat. It comes down to strategizing and I got to go here before those guys get there. I got, and you know, it's like, what a pain.
3: Yeah. There's so much stress. I don't like to have to plan out how I'm going to beat people to the river. I just want to go fishing. But you said it was like that in the seventies.
1: Yep. But everybody moved. That was one of the, there weren't as many like on the, in the screen, in the Skeena. And it's, it's all because people didn't have boats and couldn't get around. Oh, they didn't have
3: that many jet boats back then?
1: No, and they certainly didn't have all the all the pontoon boats, and they weren't using uh, uh, drones to see who's coming down the river. So they Are they could, doing that now? That's the that's the that's the the move now. Is you have a drone, and you have your two or three of your buddies, and then you see who's coming down the river. Then you run down, and take the next three or four runs before they get there. That was there was some almost some fisticuffs on the on the Dean uh, a year ago. Guys doing that every to him every day.
3: I think I'll retire fishing if I've got to start battling computers.
1: Well, I just said you had a shotgun, didn't you? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, but you can't do anything to those guys with guns anymore. You can't even... I, like... just,
1: I just shoot their drone.
3: <laughs> Can you do that?
1: No, but I'd do it anyway. I oh, thought you're it was giving a, me ideas. I thought it was a bear.
0: <laughs> Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th.
2: It's
3: been interesting for me. I've seen you get older. When did I meet you?
1: Re- realistically, um, when you got your first, spay rod at the at the um,
3: twenty one years old
1: at the um, log cabin pub.
3: Yep. So twenty one. I'm Thirty seven. Almost there. And, I, and I, made,
1: I made you vote, or made you put some money up, and everybody else quit quit bidding, <laughs> bidding on it because you got it. Money up. Yes. And, and then and then I. I pissed Steve off by, by taking right. you over and suggesting he give you some lessons and take oh, you was, out.
3: Remember, he was purple. He was so <laughs> blushed. He was so I, don't, I couldn't tell if he was mad or embarrassed or what. Well, but both he was probably. Purple. He's
1: such a nice guy. And we I, had a I, great time. I, by oh, I the way, he did. I know he did. And became good friends <laughs> yeah, after that. But
3: so okay, so sixteen years, sixteen years in the space of sixteen years, you're sixty five now. Mm-hmm. So you would have been forty nine. Forty nine. Think about yourself from 49 to 65. Do you think you've changed a lot? Because I feel you've changed a lot. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
3: Talk to me about your fly casting. When did you decide you wanted to compete in Sparama?
1: It comes down, it does come still down to competitiveness. Leopards don't change their spots. And, and you know, even though it's the kinder, gentler Tyler, that's always, there's always the spots are there.
3: Were but, you really big into casting back then? I remember you were all about catching fish. Were you big into casting? I was casting? all about
1: ca- I used to make fun of Dana and... Nabuo Yeah And Tak uh, Shimazawa used to come over with Nabuo And I used to call them fucking casters Actually it was It was It was more Dana and, and Tak And some Nabuo and I go fishing Right And I used to laugh And well it turns out I'm the fucking caster now But What happened was Getting involved with C&D
3: Right That's right I forgot about that
1: And uh, Just all the windows that that opened up Like I didn't want to do it Dana already had a deal with Loop At the time and Nabuo, it's an interesting story, how, how CND came about. Dana phoned uh, me one day and said, what are you doing? Nothing, he's just, let's go, let's go casting. I got some rods to try out. And so we go and he had these eight rods and they were CNDs. And he said, this TAC guy emailed him and asked him if it was okay if he put a hot link to Spay pages on his website in Japan you know he didn't have to but that's the japanese way they he asked and he said fine sure go ahead and then about two weeks later he phoned dana and said i have a friend who is spay rod designer who for 15 years was head designer for daiwa uk um, and he's making spay rods here in japan would you be interested in trying them out dana said, sure and four days later there were eight rods at his door and so we're casting them. There are two sets, and the gray ones and the green ones. Which ones do you like? Oh, I like the gray ones. He says, okay, here, they're yours. And so, um, okay, that was all cool. And then he starts stalking back and forth, and me as well, with with Nabuo. And Nabuo asked us, he said, You guys, would you guys like to design a rod for the Thompson? Well, let me see. What's what have I got to do here? <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so we talked back and forth for a long time. You know, we wanted a 16 and a half, 16 seven, whatever.
3: 16 and a half? Yeah. Like a, well, yeah, I guess for you. Sure. I wouldn't even know what to do with that.
1: Sure you would. Sure you would, because with those big rods, if, you're, if your technique is good, they're easier than small rods.
3: And you guys were able to keep them lightweight?
1: Um, yeah, as it turns out. But anyway, we... we what finally solved it was Dana had spent time working with Derek Brown from Scotland on a spade driver, this line that he cobbled together and showed Dana. And once we sent that to the buoy, we went, ah, he understood what we wanted in a rod. And so anyway, so he develops this rod and we met him in November, on November 1st, week of November on the Thompson, this Japanese guy. And we pull out these 16 foot, six inch rods and we couldn't believe it. They felt like eight weights. They were so they were so light and amazing and uh, we went out and cast and so then he wanted pro staff in North America and he asked me if I would do it. And I, I, I I don't you know, I don't really I'm not really interested. And Dana twisted my arm and I said, Okay. So that you know, that kind of started that that whole deal and, and then part of it was Spare-A-Rama came around. Right. We're going to Spare-A-Rama. and I go, Okay, well, and I thought I was a pretty good caster. I was a big strong guy. And basically i just was big and strong
3: what was it like your first time in the pond
1: scary it's, it's still it's still scary yeah <laughs> but uh i went down there and i totally had my eyes opened as to what casting by real casters Was.
3: Did you compete the first time?
1: No, I was, actually my wrist was really bad, but I still, I used that as a bit of an excuse. And uh, I sat there and watched the prelims and I went, oh my God, what is wrong with you? You can cast better than half of these guys. You should be out there. So I started and what I learned was that I had to learn. Yeah. Like I I had to, I couldn't just wail away because I was big and strong there because they were There are little guys are outcasting me, so they gotta be doing something better than me. And that was the competitive what what was really cool about the casting is it's not fishing. It helps fishing. I'm way better way better at fishing. Not better fisherman, but way better at fishing because I can cast better. And I can I've got the skills to make all kinds of casts in all kinds of situations. But I'd always struggled with my competitive nature and fishing, always. I know Dana used to bug me all the time that that I was too competitive, that if other guys were catching fish and I wasn't, I would, you know, I'd get mad at myself and i just start trying hard and just, and you wouldn't want to talk to me because I didn't, because I just wouldn't talk. So I always struggled with it. And all of a sudden I had something to be competitive about, like really competitive, like something to train for. The interesting thing is my buddy Dana, who, He's a great caster. He says there's no way he could compete. He said he'd crap himself. He could not do it.
3: A hundred percent. I could not do it. So what was the, what was your biggest lesson when you actually stepped in that pond?
1: The first lesson, which was a really big one, was uh, I was nowhere near as good as I thought I was.
3: That's a good lesson.
1: Mm-hmm. And then after that, the lesson was you actually had to practice. You had to You had to practice properly. And practice means no hook. Practice means practice. How many days a week? In preparation, like I didn't do it all year, like some of the guys, you know, some of the real serious, the Europeans. Um, Even Tim Arsenault doesn't practice a whole lot longer than I do. He just practices well and is very good. Um, In from, I usually start about Christmas for end of April. And... Start out just a couple times a week and then go three, maybe four times a week. But short, short sessions, like just practicing the same thing, the same bad thing over and over again is no good. (laughs) And that's one of the hard things is not having anybody else to practice with.
3: I was going to ask you that. So do you have a mentor?
1: Greg Bensavinga.
3: Oh yeah, good.
1: That's a good one. He's, I call him Sensei. We've been, we've been, we've been hanging out together before he could cast.
3: But he doesn't live in Canada.
1: No, no. A whole bunch of my friends don't live in Canada, and that's part of that's a that's part of the Speyarama thing. The competitive guys are from all over the place, and B, it's also part of steelhead. You know, uh, I I spend more days now in Idaho fishing, and I always spent a lot of time in Washington when the sketch was open because it's. Close from, you know, from where I live on the south side of the river, it's I can be an hour and a half fishing the lower Skagit.
3: Are you going to keep competing?
1: I think so. You know, um, I I'm responsible for the when they started the senior division.
3: So you started that? Oh,
1: yeah, that was my, was my uh, I you know I I I started the ball rolling.
3: What was your reasoning for that?
1: My reasoning, uh, competitiveness. I was going to ask. You know, like I I went down there and like I made the top 10 in the open once. Congratulations. Yeah. That's that's hard. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal. And then um, I I usually was somewhere around between 13 and 17 every year. That's still really good. Oh yeah, for sure. And and really you compete with yourself. And you know, and I every year I was, you know, competing with Simon Gosworth and you know, we were right around the same Did he do Spay-A-Rama? Yeah, he's done it a few times. No kidding. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is great. I don't mind, you know, I don't mind being, being like in this this part of the middle of the pack, the top end of the middle. But you know, there's no way I can compete with those 30, 35 year old European guys. They're just too flexible, and and just you can't do it. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm I was about 57 or 8 at the time, and I'm just saying. I, so I brought it up in in the the post comp meeting, and I started working, playing it with the club guys who are all older guys. And I said, look, the demographic of spay casting in North America is our age. Like most of us started when we were in our mid to late forties. Yeah, it's you know, true. Most of us did. Yeah. And, you know, now we're we're really interested in the casting part of it, which is what the comp is. It's It's learning how to, learning casting. And we want to do it. Now, not everybody was like me in... Just being willing to get out there and go ahead and compete and be at that level, like most, most guys. And I found this a lot with with North Americans, Americans in particular, is if they're not going to be good, they won't do it. You know, like I went to a competition in Japan, went to, a to a competition in Tokyo. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, they didn't care. They were out there. You know, if they, really? if they were brutal, they were out there. Oh, yeah, they have like 250 guys. And they're all, and some of them were brutal, but they didn't care. They're having a great time. Americans won't do that. But I, I worked, talked to, to the the older group in the club, and they were going, yeah, you know, we could compete in that. And so the older guys in the club got behind it, and they, they brought in the senior division, 55 plus. The I other guess. side of it is, in order to be good and even semi successful at com- competition, and that doesn't mean win, that just means to be. To be better than you were last year, it's one of the most valuable things you could do for fishing. You know, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Yeah, you're you're just what you're mentioning. You, am I going to go fishing or am I going to go practicing? But if you practice and you learn the skills that are required to to make good competitive casts, then you can fish anywhere, anytime, in any condition.
3: Including with people going by with phones because I fall apart the second the camera's on me. And it doesn't matter if it's my husband or a film crew or some random guy going down the river. If I'm being watched, I fall apart. And then as soon as that person's gone, I'm back to myself. And I would love to kick that. Because well, it's, it's a real phobia of mine and I can't get over it. And it will I, I ruin what, my what, day. I feel what, so dumb.
1: What we need is more lower-key competitions. Like, let's face it, Spearama is the number one competition in and the world. Yeah, it's
3: on YouTube and on the internet. Oh, oh. Uh, the whole thing just gives me shudders. You talk
1: you talk to the Europeans and they all say, oh, no, no, it's the one. Like all these other competitions that they go to are nothing compared to Spearama. Nowhere yeah. do you have the depth of water, the, the size of the angle change, having to do all the casts. Like they never did snake rolls till they came here. They said there's nothing like it. And so it's... You know, it's like it's like going into the Olympics, cold. You need to have other places like that competition we had in in Portland, and they do have another one now in Long Beach. If you really if you really want to get your feet wet, and at a much lower key, go to Long Beach.
3: Do you think that people with big names are more afraid? Because oh yeah. They,
1: yeah, they got stuff to lose. I, I'm sure that was part of Dana's thing. If I go out there and crap my pants,
3: totally. It's, I was going to compete, and Stevie and Amy Hazel, and I love both of them. Like family mm-hmm. pulled me aside and said, you literally have nothing to gain from this. Don't do it. And, and I, I mean, I know there, there was have, more to it than that. Yeah, but. No,
1: but you have, no, you do have to gain from it. You have that. It shows April Volk, has got the balls to get out and try I it. I do
3: not have the balls to get out and try it. I will say that right now if you on record. But if
1: you do it, that's what you gain. <laughs>
3: My balls shrivel to the size of what you would expect in freezing cold water if I were to have balls. They do not exist. I just do not have any balls to do it. In fact, thinking about it makes me like, it, it, it almost makes me physically
1: upset to think about it. Well, then you don't want to do it.
3: Which means I probably should do it. You know not what I mean? Not there. Not but, there. But not there.
1: Um... There was a guy, I can't remember his last name, now. a big Bill. He's a guy from Monroe, Washington, six foot seven, it was a defensive end, played high level football, and I knew him from fishing. I see him on the clear water. I see him see him when I'm practicing down in Lake Ty in Monroe. We go down there and meet, he's often there. And he says, Tyler, I want to I wanna compete. I'm gonna to come to Spare Ram. I go, great, he's a pretty good caster. And we got down there and he was down about four or five days early. He's out in the pond. He's casting and he's casting, and then I don't see him for most of the day. And then, and then uh, the day before the competition, he cornered me out back behind the clubhouse, and he was almost in tears. There's this yeah. six foot seven mountain of a man, and he said, "Tyler, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Nerves. I can't. I can't go out there. I just can't do it." I said, "Well, then don't do it, Bill. Just sit on the sideline, watch, enjoy it. You know, and you learn something."
3: Well, maybe it's just not for everyone, but I can see how it would be highly beneficial. You'd learn a ton.
1: Oh, I, I'd like, like I said, I thought I was a good caster before I got there.
3: Yeah. Do you feel like you've settled in, into yourself? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I feel Absolutely. it. Like
3: I feel it just every time I run into you.
1: Absolutely. And, just, and it makes me happy. And, yeah. uh, and I get it.
3: There's this energy, and it's just, it's relaxing for me. And I was just really curious about it. So, Thank you.
1: You're welcome.
3: Um, Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me?
1: I I just have to say uh, how big a fan I am of who you've become.
3: Oh, thank you. Um, From not watching porn on the Thompson.
1: Oh, that was the best story ever. That was, that I can't was, believe
3: you tell people that. I you, tell it all the you time. You know, it's not me. Everybody in that house had the porn channel on. It wasn't I, no,
1: no, me no. Watching no it, it wasn't you. It was, <laughs> it was those two guys. It was what you said to them that just that just moving blew, forward, moving blew forward, blew them away. It was the forward. best.
3: <laughs> um, but yes, I yes we've come, come a long way since we first met Tyler Kushner.
1: <laughs>
3: well, thank you very oh, much. No,
1: thank you. It's super, super fun and very cool
3: thank you for letting us stay here. I'm going to let this little girl go to bed okay. because it is now 1230 in the morning. And, um, our, my daughter has been
1: up just the whole time, <laughs> up the
3: whole time and interrupting and dipping her fingers in my scotch. So I'm there going to, her to go to bed. Um, thank you very okay, much. Okay, right on. And that concludes this episode of anchored. Thank you
2: for listening.